Well, if you have a Bible and you can get it out, I'd love for you to turn with me to Ephesians chapter 5, to verses 21 to 33. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 21 to 33. Each week at our church, we open up the scriptures together. Ordinarily, I will read directly from them. I believe that that's a a good thing to do. I want to hear from God himself, and then we'll pray, and we'll take time thinking through what does this mean for us. So Ephesians 5, starting in verse 21. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church, without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body, just as Christ does the church. For we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery. But I'm talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. Let's pray. Lord, as we've opened your word together. We're praying that you, by your spirit, through your word, would speak to us today. We're grateful, God, for the reality that the gospel changes everything. And as a church, we're committed to thinking through what that means. And one of the things that the gospel changes for sure is the relationship of marriage. And so we ask, God, that you would help us, that you would help us to consider what marriage truly is and what you mean by it and what it can accomplish, Lord, but we desperately need your help. So we pray for that in Jesus' name. Amen. About, uh, I believe it was about 18 years ago, a friend of mine from high school asked if I would perform his wedding ceremony for he and his fiance. And having grown up with this guy and known him for a long time, I was ordained at that point. I had done a, maybe a handful of weddings at that point. And so I said, yeah, that's no problem. I'll do that. And so I get ready for the wedding, and uh, I'm standing there at the altar, and I've got my notes in front of me, and I'm about to present from Ephesians chapter 5, what we just read here, and uh, I'm, I'm all ready for the bride to start coming down the aisle. My buddy's standing there beside me, and she starts walking down the aisle, and I just have this moment of realization. I don't know her very well, and Ephesians 5 is a very jarring passage of Scripture, is it not? So all of a sudden, every step, she's getting closer, and I'm like, I'm about to ruin their wedding day. (laughs) Because I'm about to share things that I'm not sure that in this moment I would be able to persuasively convince anyone of. And so she's coming down the aisle, and all of a sudden, I'm freaking out. Like, I'm like, 
okay, how's this going to go down? So I tried to modify what I was saying in that moment. And I'll just be honest with you, I bombed that ceremony. Like it was the worst public speaking event of my entire life. There were things about the wedding, because I was so overwhelmed by just lack of preparedness and and just a lack of foresight to, to think through this, I was so shaken by it that a lot of the other elements of the service just slipped my mind. Like I skipped things in the wedding. You know, you've got vows, you've got exchanges of rings, you've got special things that are going on in the service, and all of that is just flying right by me. And then it ends, and uh, the workers look at each other. The workers at the venue look at each other, and they're like, what was that? And then they, they untie the ropes because we're on a boat in Lake Geneva, and we push out to sea. Uh, on Lake Geneva, obviously. And now, I'm stuck on a boat for three-plus hours floating around trying to hide uh, and thinking to myself, I should swim home. (laughs) But every time I look at Ephesians chapter 5 now, I'm reminded of the jarring effect of this passage. I read this passage, and, and I always think to myself, this is so different. This is so otherworldly that a lot of times people will look at this, even people who've been Christians for a long time, they'll look at this and they'll scratch their heads and go, does that really, is that really what we're supposed to do? I mean, is there something about this that maybe it's just kind of an archaic teaching for the Ephesians, but does it really apply to us today? There's something about this passage that I am well aware is incredibly surprising to us. So I want to start, basically we're going to look at this under two headings. We're going to look at the glorious truth that is presented here. Some of the realities that stand behind every God-honoring marriage. We're going to look at some of those things. They are incredibly amazing. We're going to look at some of these theological truths that God has revealed to us in his scripture about this institution of marriage. And then we'll get to some of those practical things, but I I feel like you need to get brought up to speed first. And really, as I look at Ephesians chapter 5, that's where the emphasis really is. It's trying to help us recognize what marriage is, not just what to do within it. If you were to go to a bookstore and go to the section on marriage, you know what you'll find? A lot of garbage. But most of it is just kind of like, here are five steps, here are four things you need to know, here are a handful of you know, different practical steps that you might take to try to improve your marriage. And what I'm convinced of as a pastor, having stood on the front line of watching people make this commitment over and over and seeing the after effect of that, what I'm convinced of is the main thing that we need to do as a church is help people understand what marriage actually is. And that's what Paul is doing here. He talks about marriage. He's applying the gospel to the Christian household. He's being very boots on the ground. He's thinking about these realities of marriage and parenting and going to work on Monday morning, and he's talking about how the gospel applies to all of that. But when he gets to the subject of marriage, all of a sudden he takes it up a different plane. Like we're on a different level. And he's talking about things where you're like, I don't even know what the subject matter is anymore. Because he sees marriage in the bigger picture of what God is ultimately doing. So first off, what I want you to see is that marriage is a profound gift from God. It is a profound gift from God. Now that shows up in our passage in verse 31, where Paul writes like this. He says, for this reason, 
A man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. Now, Paul did not invent that line. That is from Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. It's from the very first wedding ceremony. You open the very front of the Bible, you find a ceremony. It's a wedding ceremony, and God is the, he's everything in this case. He's the father of the bride. He's walking Eve down the aisle. Then he switches into the officiant role, and he's the one who's doing the ceremony. He's also the witness to this event, and then he's the governing authority who's able to issue that reality of, here's your your marriage license, so to speak. God is the one who assigns that. So God is doing all kinds of different things in this first wedding, but um, what we should feel then is that this is a gift from God. If you think about that first wedding, you read about it in Genesis chapters 1 and 2, but what you find is God creates this beautiful creation, and he makes Adam in his image takes the dust of the earth, and he breathes life-giving breath into him. He makes Adam, and he puts him in the garden, this beautiful place that is inhabited by God himself. It's beautiful with vegetation and beauty and all these different things. And he gives Adam a job. He says, you need to name all the creatures. And Adam starts doing his job. But then Adam comes to this realization. He's looking around at all of creation, and he goes, there's really not a suitable companion for me here. Like, this is beautiful, don't, you know, don't take me wrong, like, this is amazing, God, but when I look around, there's not a suitable companion for me. And God says, okay, now we're ready. And he takes Adam, and he puts him into a deep sleep, and he takes his rib, and from that rib, he fashions the first woman. And so God is like, I can't wait to see what you're going to think of this. And Adam comes to, and it's the first wedding ceremony. And God is walking Eve down the aisle, so to speak. And Adam looks up and he is like, oh, baby, like this is a really good idea. And he actually breaks into a poetic song. This is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. And then we get that verse, verse 24. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. And right away in the Bible, what we find is that God invented this incredible gift. And he invented it so that we might experience this beautiful companionship, this beautiful arrangement that God designed and created and gifted to us. And here's what it says, that two become one. Weird math, right? But you get two people, a husband leaving his father and mother, being united to his wife, and then what happens? One plus one, one. Two become one. I don't know if I'll ever live up to this vow, but on our wedding day, God gave me the intuition to promise to Ash that over the course of our lives, one of my aspirational goals, one of my vows would be that it would become fuzzy where I end and she begins. So that if you're talking about us, you're talking about Cor, or you're talking about Ash, you're not really sure, you're you're really talking about both of us. And, And it becomes blurry because that's what God is accomplishing in every marriage that is honoring to him. He is taking two individuals with their unique families of origin, with their unique personalities and temperaments and experiences, with their unique vision for what they're going to do with their lives, and, and their, their different, you know, 
financial situation, and, and he's taking all of that, and he's saying in marriage, there is this reality where two become one flesh. And so when we think about marriage, we are talking about a gift from God, an invention that God came up. We didn't dream this up. Humanity didn't say, hey, we've got some good ideas around here. Why don't we do something called marriage? No, no, no. This is God's gig. He has a patent on it. It is his, and it is a gift that we were able to keep. Ray Ortland points this out. He says, we have a souvenir from the garden, right? The Garden of Eden was that experience where it's described like this. They get married, and then it says they were naked, and they knew no shame completely open to one another, completely vulnerable, completely intimate, complete harmony with each other, with God, with creation. It's this beautiful experience, but then sin. And sin spoils everything. And in fact, marriages now are difficult on account of sin. The right away, God tells us, you have really messed things up, and now even the marriage relationship is going to be full of strife and competing, and hostility, and division. But Adam and Eve were kicked out of the garden that day, and God said, he, put, he posts the angels. If you guys have read this, he posts angels with flaming swords. We can't get back in, except for the Bible is the story of how humanity is going to re-enter the garden. But anyways, we, we were booted. We had to leave the garden, and God said, okay, You've really messed up, but I am going to allow you to keep one thing from the garden, marriage. I know you messed this up, but I'm not taking it back. You get this gift so that every time in every culture, every marriage actually can communicate something of God's good intention for humanity. It's an incredible gift. Marriage is a profound gift from God. Marriage also is this mega theme in the Bible. It's not just some incidental thing that shows up on a couple different pages. It actually becomes a massive theme throughout Scripture, which is why when we're in Ephesians chapter 5 and Paul is talking about the married couples in the church of Ephesus, he all of a sudden just goes to this different level and he says, guys, what we're talking about here is the relationship between God and his people. We're talking about Christ's love for his church. This is, this is different. It's not just another kind of relationship. It's not just like, you know, you've got your friendships and then you've got your marriages. And, you know, it's, marriage is just where you've, you've become more in love or more intimate or more whatever. It's, no, no, no. This is, a, this is a totally different kind of relationship. There's obvious overlap between friendships and marriages and things like that. But when we are introduced to this idea of marriage, one of the things we need to say is this is different. This is God's Thing that he has gifted to us, and it is a mega theme in the Bible. So he is talking here. Let's look at verses 25 and following. He says, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish but holy and blameless. It's confusing because he's looking at people who are literally married and then all of a sudden, he's talking about Christ and the church. And he's, he's, he's reminding us that this is the, the theme of the Bible. That on page one, you have a wedding ceremony. And then if you flip over to the very last chapters of the Bible, what do you find? 
another wedding ceremony. And then in between, in places like Ephesians chapter 5 and other places, you find out this, there's this anticipation for the wedding supper of the Lamb and His bride. The whole Bible is a, it's a romance story and is helping us to see God's relentless love for His bride. So when we begin to think about marriage in this way, it's, it's different, right? It is, it's different. We're not just talking about something that we decide upon and a couple of us make some choices, but, you know, really, if things go sideways, we can easily dissolve it. No, 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 we're talking about something different altogether. It's one of the reasons why, and my wife can, can attest to this, but I honestly cannot find entertainment in programs that diminish marriage. Like, I've stood in front of congregations too many times with couples and, and watch this incredible thing that happens. And it, it's, it's a work of God. Do you know what Jesus says when, when he's questioned about divorce? He quotes Genesis 2.24, that passage that we just looked at. He says, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. And this is the Lord Jesus commenting now. He says, therefore, what God has joined together. It's a work of God. That any of us are married in here, is a, it's a divine act of God himself. And so I for me, I, just, I want everyone to just have their, their understanding of marriage elevated so that they see it as this profound and beautiful institution that God has given to us. Well, marriage also is a display of the gospel, and that's the point that we find here. He's telling us that through our marriages and through the way that we can sacrificially love, we can communicate something of the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the first thing that he says is that we, we do this. Husbands are loving their wives because, and he's going to point to the one flesh union, if we are in Christ, we become members of Christ. And so to love to love. The members of the body is an expression of our love. So look at verse 30. Here's what he says. For we are members of his body. Talking about Christ. He's saying, Christ loves us. We don't deserve it. In fact, we do things to really offend God. But Christ is persistent in his love for us. And here's the reason why. We are his. We're members of his body. So he looks at us, and because of that gospel dynamic, we are in Christ. And so by loving us, he's loving his own body. And the point then is made that husbands ought to do that for their bride as well. Verse 32, he goes on to say this. This is a profound mystery. But I'm talking about Christ and the church. Now, I know it sounds weird because we're like... Is he talking about a marriage? Is he talking about the church? What is he doing here? But mystery here is not like, hey, we have no clue what this is. Mystery in the Bible is actually a technical word, which means it was previously hidden, but now it's been revealed. It's like there's something over the top of it, and you have a suspicion of what it might be, but then through the revelation of God's scripture, it's unveiled. And all of a sudden you go, well, that was mystery. I didn't anticipate that. So imagine it like this. God gives you a present, it's wrapped up, and it's rectangular, and you take it, and you're like, oh, cool. You lift it up, and you're like, oh, I think it's a book. And he's like, this is your gift for marriage. And you're like, oh, boy, is this a marriage book? Like, 
you know, we're not excited about it. And so we're just thinking through, you know, this present that he gives to us. And I'm like, okay, I probably have to read a book on marriage now. Great. And so we're opening it up. And then all of a sudden we realize, oh, it's not a book. It's not, a, it's not what we anticipated. It's a, all of a sudden it's this beautiful container. And you open it up and inside of there are treasures, like jewels and diamonds and all this beautiful plunder from the Garden of Eden. And he goes, here you go. And you think to yourself, I had no idea. Like, I did not anticipate that in the slightest. That's what we're talking about when we get to this idea of marriage. He says, this is a profound mystery. Not that we don't understand it, but that we did not expect it to be what it is. He's saying, what marriage is, is a vehicle of the gospel. It becomes a visible display of God's love for his creation. Your marriage can communicate the beauty of God's love for people. Your marriage has that kind of capacity. It is a divine institution that God has gifted to us, and it is a grandiose and profound and beautiful reality. Now, some of you, your marriages are falling apart, and you might be thinking through, okay, core, fun, like this is neat, but this is all pie in the sky stuff. You're talking about marriage on this different plane, but man, I just, I don't even know if my marriage is going to work out. And we're thinking through, does this help us at all? And the truth is, is you begin to see your marriage as a mirror of God's love for his people, all of a sudden you have new resources available to you. You begin to see that your love for your spouse can actually reflect the love of God for his people. You can learn something about how to endure in the midst of a marriage that looks and feels like it's falling apart. Let me give you one example from scripture. If you were to turn to the middle of the Bible, there's a book called Hosea. And God says to a prophet named Hosea, hey, I'm going to have you marry a Gomer. And literally, her name is Gomer. You're going to marry this girl, and she is nothing but trouble. She is unfaithful, and, you know, you're going to marry her. And he does. He marries Gomer, and he falls in love. He falls madly in love with her. He's so excited about it. And then, sure enough, she goes back to her unfaithfulness, her infidelity. She goes after other lovers. And then God says, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, Hosea, we're not done here yet. Actually, I want you to go and retrieve your bride. And now she has so enmeshed herself in all these commitments to other lovers that it's not just that he can go and say, hey, I forgive you. You know, we all make mistakes. Like, I understand like that. You, you, you've got a, a history and you've got past trauma and all this stuff. And, and, you know, I forgive you. No, no, no. At this point, she's so enmeshed in her adulterous relationships that he has to redeem her, meaning he has to go, he already paid the bride price once, but now he has to go and, and redeem her again. It's costly. And he does that, and he retrieves her, and he loves her back to life in a sense. And God says, okay, what you've done here is a miniature of what I'm always doing. I love my people, and I have wed myself to them, but every time a lover walks by, their eyes glance in that direction, and they run after them. And he says, but I have not stopped loving her. I have committed myself to her. I have paid the bride price. 
I have redeemed her. She is mine. And that's what Paul is saying here. This is what Christ has done. He is washing his bride with the water of the word, purifying her, beautifying her, and making her ready for that wedding day. And if you see your marriage as a miniature parable of the good news of the gospel, it becomes this opportunity to look at somebody else and to say, do I have it in me by the power of the Holy Spirit to love this person like God loves us? Even when they don't deserve it. Even when they reject it. Even when they resist it. I'm going to love this person like Christ loves me. Marriage is a profound gift of God. It is a main theme in the Bible, and it is a display of God's redeeming love for his people. Well, now let's look at some of these practical applications here in our text. And you look at the first verse and the last verse, you find the bookends tell us that what we're to do is to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ in distinct ways based off of whether you're a husband or a wife. Let's look at both of those verses quickly. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. That's the front end of the passage. So then he's going to explain what that looks like, and he's going to make practical applications there. Then at verse 33, he recaps the lesson, and he says, Each of you also must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. So it's mutual submission, with distinct applications. And that's what he's going to do. He's going to say, wives, submit to your husbands, verses 22 to 24. Then he's going to say, husbands, love your wives in this particular way, in verses 25 to 29. So, submit. Right? Ugh. That's like Mufasa. Like, you say the word, and you're like, ugh. Like, in our culture, the idea of submit, we, we don't even know, okay, for real core, isn't this just like, First century stuff, isn't this archaic? Haven't we gotten beyond this? Like, submission, are you sure that we should even look at this passage in light of contemporary application? Maybe it was just for them. But the truth is, the Bible doesn't let us get away from that word. It tells us over and over again in in a variety of different settings that part of what being a Christian means is you have to submit. So in places like 1 Peter chapter 2, it tells Christians insofar as the laws of the land are good and appropriate, you should submit to them. Same word, submit to the law. It's, it's in your best interest. It's a good thing to do that. Or in Hebrews 13, it talks about spiritual leadership, and it says, Christians, you should submit to spiritual leaders. And it says, and actually, there's a particular way to do it so that their job is a joy, not a burden. So you should do that too. You should submit in that way. And then it tells us that we should submit to governing authorities in general in 1 Peter 2 and Romans chapter 13. And and it tells us that we should submit to the Lord. So submission is not a a word that we can go, yeah, that doesn't work anymore. Let's set that one aside. We don't do that. No, no, no. It's a live category. Submission is a live category in the scriptures. And just one quick thing on how we interpret. One, One of the things that I'm weary of anymore is an argument that goes something like this. Um, It's the cultural argument, and it's basically saying that there are things in the Bible that are culturally conditioned and no longer relevant. And in my opinion, that's a wrong-headed first step in application. Like, yes, there are cultural things to consider. Like, please do not come up to me today and give me a holy kiss. 
right? We will have some issues. That's a cultural application, but the principle behind it still stands. You, you, you should greet one another in culturally appropriate ways. Maybe a big hug or handshake, or you look somebody directly in the eye and you greet them. Yeah, there's a cultural aspect to that reality. But when you look at massive sections of scripture and you just say, I think that is a cultural thing that is conditioned by that unique experience, let's set that aside. I would say we probably ought to learn from Jesus. What did he say in his Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5? He said, be careful. He was talking about Old Testament laws, but I think it applies to New Testament stuff as well. He says, be careful of people who set aside the law of God and teach others to do likewise. In fact, on the day of judgment, you probably don't want to get in their line. It's going to take a little bit to sort that stuff out. Do, be careful of people who set aside the laws of God and teach others to do the same. And positively, he said, but those who practice and teach these things, their reward will be great in the kingdom of heaven. When we look at the scriptures, one of the things we have to be careful of is quickly dismissing things. So why is Ephesians 5 here and what does it mean to submit? Let's look at it briefly. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. It's saying, God, here's my personal opinion. You can disagree with me and write your scathing emails. I think God actually knows what he's doing. And I think he gifted us with uh, a decided arrangement within the household. And it wasn't incidental and it's not accidental. And obviously it can be abused, just like every good gift of God's, God's can. Obviously it can be abused, but I really do believe that God has given us this arrangement and it is for our good. It is not oppressive. It is divine. God is saying, wives, you can do something that is actually a beautiful and good thing uh, my wife was in a Bible study with some of her girlfriends, and one of the ladies suggested doing this old workbook. It was so dorky looking, and I, I love to make fun of Christian culture stuff because so much of it is so bad. And she's doing this workbook, and, and all the younger girls in the group are like, uh, should we really be doing this thing? And the cover is just awful, and you look at it, and you're like, this is going to be weird. Um, but they went through that workbook, and... I can look at what happened in the wake of that. And, and honestly, like our marriage changed. And it was a workbook based off of Ephesians chapter 5 uh, of how to go about living this stuff out. And so there were exercises and activities and discussions and things of that nature. But our marriage, in, after the, that experience, was improvedly better. And Ash is still waiting for me to do my own workbook, but... In the meantime, I'm grateful she did that one. So one of the things we, just, we need to recognize is sometimes our problem is that we're unwilling to try what God says. I'm going to come back to that in just a moment. All right, husbands, here's what you have to do. Not an easy one either. 25 and following. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless husbands 
you must love your wife. And you must love her in the same way that Christ loved his bride. What did he do for her? He died for her. He bled and died for her benefit. He looked at this arrangement and he said, I'm going to do whatever is in her best interest, even if it costs me very dearly. Husbands, stop thinking about yourself. Stop thinking that your marriage is just for you and your wife is just there to serve you and submit to you. No, husbands, sacrificially love your bride. Begin to think through, not how can I negotiate so I can get what I want? How can I keep her happy and off my back so I can get to what I really want to do? No, no, no. Think through, what would be in her best interest? What can I do that would be a blessing to her? Husbands, love your wives in that way, like Christ has loved his own bride, the church. Well, we're also to do this because it is in our best interest. Husbands, love them because they are a part of your body. In fact, that's the point that's being made by referencing Genesis 2.24. Two have become one. So this is a one flesh union. So what he goes on to say is, you love her like she's a part of your body, because she is. Look at verses 28 and following. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they fed and cared for their body, just as Christ does the church. So you need to be thinking about your bride, and you need to be thinking about the fact that if you fail to love her, that's actually self-harm. You're doing damage. You, you have a member of your body, an extension of you, and by neglecting or, or failing to give what is needed there, you're actually doing harm. You're doing harm to that one flesh union. You're doing harm to yourself. So husbands, love your wives like Christ loved the church. Love your wives like your own body because she is your body. All right, as we wrap this up, I want to borrow a quote from G.K. Chesterton. He wrote like this, and he was talking about Christianity in general, but I want to apply it to marriage. He said, the problem with Christianity is not that it's been tried and found wanting, but that it's been found difficult and left untried. The problem with Christianity, he's you know, writing as an apologist and helping people think through the reality of God and the truth of the gospel, and he says, the problem with Christianity, the reason why a lot of modern people don't buy into it is not because they've tried it and, and felt like, ah, that wasn't that great. It wasn't that significant. And he says, no, no, no. The problem is that it, they realize that sort of commitment to a God, to God himself, and, and all that that would entail, that sounds too difficult. I'm not even going to try. I think that same concept can be applied to the Christian marriage. The reason why a lot of us would look at Ephesians 5 and shudder and wonder if it's applicable to us is because we recognize how difficult it would be and we leave it untried to our own detriment. A Christian marriage is an opportunity for the glory of the gospel to be on display. And God is inviting us to embrace this high calling of receiving this incredible gift that he's given to us, a souvenir from the garden itself and to recognize that it is something that we should cherish and promote 
and celebrate. And it is something that we should lean into and try to love each other and submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. But we should take this concept and try it. And imagine how beautiful it would be if Christian marriages in our church and in the community were a visible display of God's love for an unfaithful people. And people could see our marriages and come to the conclusion that God is real and he loves us and we can entrust ourselves to him. Let's try Christian marriage for God's own glory. Let's pray. Lord, I pray right now and I'm asking that you would help each and every one of us, whether we are married or divorced or single, whatever the case might be, Lord, I pray that you would elevate our our understanding and our estimation of the divine institution of marriage. Pray, Lord, that every one of us, including the kids in here and the kids back there, that, that we would begin thinking about marriage as this profound gift. And we would see it as an opportunity to live out our Christ-likeness in real time. And we would see it as an opportunity to display your love for an unfaithful people. And then, Lord, by your Spirit, fill us so that we might Love and serve and bless one another by submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. We pray in his name. Amen.